Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Lars van Wieren, founder and CEO of Start. It's a lot of fun when you start saying no. So in the beginning, what we did, like every opportunity, yeah, we went after it. I often compare it to like Philippine dynamite fishing, our sales process, just uh, some dynamite in the water. And what will happen is some fish will come up and you don't know which fish. And now what we're doing is actually what we've adopted is, for instance, account-based marketing, where you actually look at your most successful clients and you're looking for similar companies in the market. So once you know like your target audience, it's also a lot more fun to target those companies because you can spend more money to make it far more personal to reach out to them. This is Lars. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. He started his career at Google and in 2013, he founded Start. In the time that followed, he made tons of mistakes, chased shiny objects and then restarted the same company in 2019. His mission? To shake up an area of recruitment that was broken. He found out that candidate experience feedback can be super impactful for candidates of all walks of life to share their voices, as well as helping to combat issues with diversity and inclusion bias in the hiring process. As such, Start wanted to give people a voice to improve their candidate experience, creating a happier workforce in the long term. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Lars to my podcast. We explore how the recruitment experience is broken and what consequences this has to companies. Lars shares some of the biggest mistakes he made in taking stars to where it is today. He explains what made him decide to restart a company and say goodbye to almost 90% of the revenue. He then elaborates on how he used the momentum of that fresh start as the mechanism to dominate the right segment of the market. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, the signals to pay attention to to understand whether you're positioned too broadly. Secondly, why you should consider opting for stable, slow-grow markets over extreme high-growth markets to grow fast. Thirdly, that defensible differentiation is not about having most features and functions. And lastly, what metrics to hit before going into the next market. Well, hi Lars, thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been cooking for a while because I think we've been talking about it for uh, since the beginning of the year and then it stopped at some point in time and recently we actually met in Amsterdam and we got it back on the agenda. So I'm really inspired to uh, to get this call going today because what you do with your company start is another example of what I started this podcast for. But we'll talk about it later on in a couple of minutes. Before we start, a little bit about you. If you would 
describe yourself as an entrepreneur or as a person? What characteristics do come up? <laughs> yeah, I would say um, quite an uh, outgoing uh, person. Eh? We also met at an event I organized for other uh, SaaS uh, founders. My glass is uh, always uh, half full. Yeah. Also, sometimes uh, my team find it a bit annoying that uh, I always try to see the silver lining. But uh, yeah, that uh, that keeps me uh, going and always looking at the status quo and uh, how can we change uh, things. So yeah, really a builder and an uh, entrepreneur, I would say. Cool. The perfect bridge to switch to start. What I saw on LinkedIn and doing a little bit preparation is that on the one side, it sort of officially started in 2019, but unofficially started in 2013. What's the story there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's correct. Well, officially, it started in 2013. All so right. that's already a while ago. And I start when working at Google. Once a year, we did a very long and boring customer satisfaction survey. Yeah. Our clients uh, hated it. It took them 30 minutes of their time. After a couple of months, we got this uh, big report by post. We read it one time. We promised to do better. But after two months, there was some dust on the report and we started to make the same mistakes again. Yeah, exactly. And a year later, when we conducted the same survey, our clients were quite upset, stating, hey, why should I answer these questions? First, have a look at my remarks of last year. So then I started to think, okay, we're the number one tech company in the world. Why are we doing this in such an old-fashioned way? And that was actually the starting point of start, where we said, okay, feedback is important, but we should put the respondent first in this equation. So from the start, we focused on making it very personal, very short and sweet, and with the right follow-up mechanisms. Let's pause there. I mean, in a nutshell, what is Startup all about? Yeah, so going back to the beginning, so it really started in the customer satisfaction space. Coming back to your question, there are two start uh, dates on LinkedIn. Well, we grew quite significantly, but then I started to make quite some uh, first-time founder mistakes. And one of them is seeing way too many opportunities. So we started with customer satisfaction. We went into employee engagement, customer support, recruitment feedback. You have a problem with feedback, better call start, they will fix it for you. Yeah, We were actually a jack of all trades and a master of none. So that was the first uh, six years. That's also why I called myself uh, Lost and Founder the first six okay, years yeah. and restarted the company in 2019. Okay. Then, very well, rolling forward to 2019, what was that one problem that you saw in the market that was screaming for a solution? <laughs> yeah. So actually, when you're working for so many different clients and different solutions, you can also like look into your own data to see hey, what's actually working. Also, where's the market going? So we did many checks and balances. And after quite some conversations, we saw that in the recruitment space, yeah, it was technically a black box. There were no metrics and uh, recruitment was growing like crazy because of the war for talent. So then we decided, okay, if we do one thing very well, let's focus on measuring and optimizing the candidate experience. So uh, feedback on the recruitment process. So all the other things where you can get feedback, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, all of those type of things ditched and decided to go into one particular niche market, a niche problem, use case almost. Yeah, technically, yes. And that also includes saying goodbye to 80 or 90% of your revenue. It's not that we wow. uh, like fired the clients, but yeah, we decided internally that it wouldn't be like our main focus. So then you also have to convince like some of your investors like, hey, 
technically we're starting uh, all over and whether you like it or not. But as a founder, I just knew also for my own energy, for the energy of the team and to be successful, we had to make a fresh start. What were the signals that you saw coming where you said, okay, enough is enough? It's a great question. Actually, one of the signals is when you see a new competitor in the market like every other day. That That's yeah. a signal that you've positioned yourself too broadly. And I think one of the other signals was actually my own team. So I didn't have to convince them. Actually, they convinced me in a way to like be laser focused because we were coming up with a new marketing website and they asked me, Lars, what should we put on a marketing website? I said, well, what we do? And they say, yeah, but we do everything. You can't do that on a compelling marketing website. Yeah. And then it started to dazzle me that I was like, hmm, maybe they're right. Maybe we should make a pivot. Exactly. Yeah, you already mentioned a number of the categories why you chose exactly the recruitment feedback area, which had to do with, on the one hand side, that people tend to work less and less for companies. So there's more attrition, more churn. Yeah. And of course, companies are growing, the market is growing, and there's a need for more people. So the kind of the volume and the number of times you have to recruit per year is just increasing. Absolutely. Um, but what I'm always interested in is in what type of situations do companies see this as mission critical? Because it can be nice to have, okay, we have people that rate how we are doing the process, find customer sort of service that we do afterwards and we care and so on. But where does it become mission critical for companies to say, you know, this is really, without it, we can't, we can't do business anymore. Yeah. Again, a great question. And what I heard like recently also with layoffs and uh, the economy cooling down is that people are saying hey, the war for talent is over. And they're absolutely right. The war for talent is over because the talent has won. Let's rephrase it like that. Because if you now look in the market, it's extremely hard to hire for certain roles. And back yeah. in the days, you had maybe in total, you could define like 100 different types of roles. I think right now there are more than 8,000 different roles. If you look at certain developers, it will be still, even in a declining economy, it will be extremely hard to hire these people. Yeah. And if you can already hire them, what you want as a company is you want A players. Eh? The so-called A player, they are really driving your company forward. And what we've noticed is if an A player is in your recruitment process and they have the slightest feeling like, hmm, this process is suboptimal, I'm not sure there are uh, like other A players uh, here, they will actually leave the process because an A player, they always want to be the dumbest person in the room because then they can learn the most. And it's quite funny, uh, Steve Jobs once said, only an A player is able to hire an A player because of the fact that they want to be the dumbest person in the room. If you go or if you are stuck up with B players, they will actually hire a C player because they are a bit afraid someone will take their role. So you will have a trickle-down effect and your company, yeah, eventually you will be stuck with not the best talent because of the trickle-down effect. So what we also say to our clients, eh, you want to have this A experience. And as Lord Kelvin said, you can't improve what you can't measure. So if you don't know where you're going, how can you improve? Yeah, it's a competitive game again. And it's the fear of missing out and the fear of others getting the people that you want. Yeah. I completely get that. Yeah. And maybe getting back to your question. So on the one hand is to make sure that you can hire the best people. But we have quite some clients where the candidate is also the client. 
And so we work for Coca-Cola, Rituals, Danone, and for instance, Vodafone. And together with Vodafone, we did this research. When they came on board as a client of Start, their candidate experience was not great, so to say. And what they did, they looked into their data, how many candidates actually cancel their subscription after a bad candidate experience. And that was quite severe. And after only four months, we got a candidate experience up significantly. And they checked again. And like on a yearly basis, the difference was like 400,000 euros in lost revenue, especially for those companies. It can really hurt your bottom line if you're not treating your candidates right. Yeah, exactly. And that is just one side effect. And there's likely a lot more if you think it's true. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So normally I ask, like, what's the opportunity if you get this right? I think that is clear. It's competitive advantage. It's A players. It's being able to compete and win for those roles. Positive experience and potentially a lot of side effects coming from there. So you went through this period first from 2013 to 19. Learn a lot of lessons. We talked about that. And possibly I want to ask a couple of more questions later on. But then 2019 came and you decided, okay, reset. So how did it go about? And how did it help you to turn it out to get the traction that you hoped for? Yeah, well, actually, it's a lot of fun when you start saying no. So in the beginning, what we did, like every opportunity, yeah, we went after it. I often compare it to like Philippine dynamite fishing our sales process, just uh, some dynamite in the water. And what will happen is some fish will come up and you don't know which fish. And now what we're doing is actually what we've adopted is, for instance, account-based marketing, where you actually Mm -hmm. look at your most successful clients and you're looking for similar companies in the market. So we have a team of scrapers all around the world and they're constantly scraping like websites of potential clients. Eh, How many open roles uh, do they have? Which recruitment systems are they using? How many employees? Which industry? And there are like, there's constantly, there are calculations. And then we know exactly these companies are the most interesting ones because they've fit our ideal customer profile. And looking at the numbers, it's quite likely that they're looking for a solution like Start. So once you know, like your target audience, it's also a lot more fun to target those companies because you can spend more money to make it far more personal to reach out to them. Exactly. Yeah. Let me make a small interruption here. Lars just made an excellent remark about the core principle that underpins the success of his company, having the guts to say no and having fun with it. Getting over that hurdle makes everything easier, not only in marketing and sales, but also in customer success, in professional services, and research and development. It's about focusing only on the right customers. Not the ones that will pay most money, but the ones that have the highest likelihood to become a fan, because they see the value of your solution in the right perspective. They are prepared to pay a premium, they will buy more more often, and will bring their lookalike peers. It's a trade remarkable SaaS companies master. They acknowledge they cannot please everyone, and with that are able to create something extremely valuable and desirable. And that drives the attraction momentum and resilience. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made an electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Very good point. And I like that for the fact that you actually start looking into all the kind of the ingredients and what defines your ideal customer profile. And we talked at the event in Amsterdam, we talked about your favorite segmentation cocktail 
And what I've already heard is that you go far beyond demographics and firmographics of size and etc. But it's also about the system they use, the number of people that they hire, the dynamics that they are going through as a business. Are there any other aspects that are critical in the segmentation mix? Actually, it differs. So for instance, until six months ago, the mix was very different than right now. So if I look at our own company, eh, clients are paying based on the number of employees. So it is in our advantage to sign companies that are growing extremely fast. We have some clients that when they signed with us, they had 1,700 employees. When they renewed, they had 3,700 employees. So yeah, it was a rocket ship. And our invoice to them was also a rocket ship. So that was a lot of fun. But then eh, the, the markets cooled off a bit. And then you're also like, okay, we can still go after all these tech companies. But once you do a layoff, you also do a hiring freeze. So it's better to look into the market and sign companies that are here already for maybe hundreds of years and are more stable. So right now we're signing far more corporates and corporates are also happy once you have them on board to sign, for instance, for three years. So there's a shift. So we're constantly updating also the levers behind the account-based marketing scores. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So right now for us, we're looking more at stability than extreme growth. Yeah, of course. But that is the wise thing to do. And it proves again that having a message, having a positioning statement, having your segmentation outlined is not set in stone. The dynamics of the market, things that nobody actually has control over, but you have to deal with it, determine whether a company goes left and right and whether that means for you up or down. And for instance, if you looking at industries, for instance, we have most fintech companies are clients and they can give extra points to fintechs because the fear of missing out. If you approach another fintech, you can say that all their competitors are measuring this. Yeah, then they're like, hmm, maybe we're missing out. So that can also help. That's always a good thing to do. We addressed sort of your go-to-market there and how you go about really niching down on the use case and also on a particular type of customer that have a particular profile. What did you change on the solution side? Was it a decision to kind of really focus also a way for you to step up and increase defensible differentiation with your solution. Yeah, absolutely. So when in 2019, we're like this generic feedback solution, which was already great and helping many clients. And we still have many of, I would say, the old clients and they're happy. Yeah. But when you enter like a new market, for instance, recruitment, what we found out after a little while is that people in recruitment are not used to buying software. So what happened? We signed a new client, everyone was happy, and we said, okay, let's start the onboarding process, and here's our API documentation, and we're like, API documentation? Yeah, you need to find a developer internally that can integrate both systems, and it was frustrating the onboarding process, because for them, it was extremely hard to find internal resources. So we said to ourselves, okay, if we really want to be successful in this market, we should do the heavy lifting, and what we built is this system where we can integrate any recruitment system now within five minutes. And it was a lot of work to build it. But yeah, right now we're really reaping the benefits of it because yeah, it's a big advantage looking at the competition. So the fact that we can integrate within five minutes without any developer, yeah, that's a game changer. Exactly. So because of the narrowing down, because the fact that you were only now looking for sort of the recruitment systems, it was a far easier task to do that but to create an advantage there. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than to be uh, generic and, and work with, on an API level with the whole market. Completely understand that. In the last two, three years then, what has been the hardest nut to crack for you or for the business? I would say that 
none of us recruiters. So we were entering this new business. And on the one hand, I think that's always helping you that you just come in from a different angle and you're looking at the status quo and you're like, why are you doing it like this? But on the other hand, yeah, you also miss some of the basics in the market. So we really had to, or we had to read a lot about this market. We had to talk to many people. We had to make quite some mistakes. But I think also if you sign companies that hire super smart people, the fact that we have many Silicon Valley companies, yeah, they have very smart people and they are also there to help you because often they have their own software product, so they know how it is and they just want to be successful with your product. So the first year it was hard to really understand, okay, but how can we help companies? And right now, sometimes, yeah, we're so nitty gritty that even recruiters are, okay, you really understand where we're coming from. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge in the beginning, but everything is documented on the internet, so uh, you will find out. Yeah, that's true. Well, you have to do the hard work at the end. But I think it, well, it comes down again, that niching down where a lot of organizations think, yeah, but the moment I niche down, I miss out on so many opportunities. Where it's, from what I've heard so far and what I've seen so far and also in my own work, it's exactly the opposite. The moment you niche down, you start to speak the language, start yeah. to address exactly the problems that keep those people up at night. It helps you become the one in that particular segment and people start talking about you and become a magnet for them. Yeah, um, it, it's so you can compare it to the ocean. So if you're like a small fish in a big ocean, yeah, yeah then you're bait uh, for the bigger fish. And now we're like a big fish in a small pond and we're making the pond bigger as we go. And we can always jump to another pond. But if I can give one advice to like every startup founder, it's always nail a niche, do one thing very well, dominate a market, make sure that your net promoter score is above plus 50 before you... Go into the next uh, market. Well said. Well said. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Well, talking about selling this, particularly that experience after you made the decision to start to become really, really focused on that one thing, what happened in the sales process? What have you learned there? You mean when you like find your niche and you change from being generic to... Did anything change in terms of win rates, your sales cycles? Like, What were the things that positively impacted? Yeah, no, absolutely. So our win rate is at 50, so five zero percent Our sales cycle is three months, which is quite short in SaaS. Was it longer? Yeah, it used to be like six months plus. And actually for us, and that's quite hard in the beginning, but even within your new niche is saying no to quite some clients. So right now, if the team wants to work for a client that has say 200 or 300 employees, they really need to make a case why. And even like those clients, even if they pay us 10,000 per year, we often don't want them as a client and maybe sound a bit harsh, but what we know 
also from our data is that it will still cost us a lot of time to onboard them properly, that it will be hard to make them really happy because 10,000 for them is like way more money than 100,000 for a big uh, corporate. And what we see is that they often churn after 12 or 24 months. So we can't make the metrics work. And then I rather like use that time to send like this perfect email to this big corporation and agree on a meeting than that we keep chasing these smaller clients. Because I think you can only become like a really big company if you say no to the wrong clients. Yeah, I wrote a blog about it this morning on LinkedIn, exactly that point. The scaling starts with saying no. And yeah, there's a trickle-down effect as well. The moment you bring in those customers and you already highlighted one aspect of it, they don't have the likelihood or the big likelihood they will become a fan, then they have a big likelihood of churning. And if you're looking at the metrics in this one, and like one of them is customer lifetime value, net revenue retention, these numbers will be impacted big time for that. And other people are looking at it as well. I mean, I'm not sure whether you got investors in your business, but they go for those numbers and they need to be in the top tier. Yeah. So that's... um, it's bad revenue. And in the past, I was like, oh, I have 5,000 euro, 10,000 euro, let's take it. And then you yeah. think you're doing yourself a favor. But in a year's time, it's actually a bad investment. So then it's better to say no. And still, it's not that we're super rigid. So sometimes it can happen that there's a company with 150 employees, but they just raised 50 million and they have 200 open roles. Then we're like, oh, if this is the next, we don't want to miss out. It depends a little bit on the circumstances. It's really a qualification process. Yeah. yeah. It's an audition for the customer. The customer has to prove that the fit is there. Yeah. It's, really it's, cool. it's like dating. Also, if you are honest to certain clients and that you ask them the hard questions like, okay, but how badly do you want this? Sometimes we really ask them questions of what they want to get out of the system. And if the answers are like not satisfactory, like in the past we had clients that said, oh, no we need to measure something for our ISO certification. Then we're like, okay, but then please just uh, grab a free tool. And uh... Exactly. Yeah, I recently saw a very cool photo from a company in the UK. I think it's called Vault. We're at a booth, I think in Vegas. And on the booth, it said, if you're just looking for doing this for yeah, the compliance check, yeah. for the tick in the box, our solution is not going to be the one for you. No. Which is, of course, a fantastic way to say in a credible way, you know, stay away. We want to work with the right customers. Yeah. That creates credibility. I still be respectful because also what we see in recruitment is that recruiters tend to change jobs sometimes more often than their underwear. You will always uh, see people somewhere else or a company can become that perfect client. So always be respectful. And right now we've had quite some leads that we rejected that are very happy with us because we... Yeah, said, hey, maybe you can go to this competitor or that competitor because you are in their ICP, but not in ours. Exactly. (laughs) But it's it's all about credibility at the end. And there's two winners. Yeah. Because if the connection is not good, it will harm scale. Uh, It will harm traction as well. I mean, one of the things I write about a lot is creating predictable traction. Love it. What are your secrets around that? What have you learned in order to create predictable traction? If you're there already, by the way. Yeah. Well, I think predictable traction starts with understanding that every lead needs like a lot of touch points. It will never happen that you write one perfect email or they click on one banner. It's a process. It's like when you're in a forest and you see a squirrel. If you try to grab the squirrel, it will jump away. If you put like little nuts eh, in front of the squirrel, a bit by bit, it will actually 
come to you and eat out of your hands. So that's exactly how we approach uh, marketing. We yep. make sure that there are like multiple touch points that were visible everywhere. And also for marketeers, therefore like the attribution. So what's the channel? That's something we actually don't focus on too much because we've seen so many leads that had an ad, they clicked on it and went to our webinar. They got like a good outbound email. They spoke yep. to a friend who re- referred them. So you need like uh, many of these points. So for us, like if we look at predictable traction is we really approach it with a funnel. So it starts with a marketing qualified lead, then a sales qualified lead, then an opportunity, and then a deal. And I told you our sales cycle is on average three months. So if this quarter, if we don't have enough marketing qualified leads, I already know that in six months time, I won't hit my target. Predictability really starts at the top. Exactly. Yeah. And the quality at the top. Not the volume is the quality. Yeah. Very well said. You know, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, and you've been in the business now for quite some time. You first, of course, at Google, then you started, you learned a couple of big lessons about how not to do things. What do you believe are essential traits, well, to build a company that people will start talking about and keep talking about? And you mean from the customer perspective or from the... If you would start a company again, yeah, what are you focused on right now in order to create that perception in the market? Yeah, I think in hindsight, well, if I would start a new company right now, what I would do is like do far more interviews, for instance. What I see is that many companies, also many starters, they have this idea and they just start running with it. They even build like a product to find out that no one actually is looking for the product. So in hindsight, I think it's good to choose like a niche, maybe that you say, hey, now, okay, it's recruitment uh, analytics. But first that you define like many hypotheses and actually talk to 30 recruiters to really find out, okay, what's the real problem now? What's a nice to have? What's a need to have? What's a must have? Focus on the must have, build like a minimum viable product. And from the beginning, ask money for it. So because only then you can validate, okay, is this really a problem worth solving? In the beginning, start was free. I thought, eh, free, everybody wants free. And it was actually hurting us because no one was taking us seriously. And it started that like one of the first clients said, I like your product, but I'm going to pay for it. I said, no, 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 it's free. You can use it for free. No, I'm going to pay for it. And that was actually the starting point also for us. Like, "Mm, okay, let's just ask money for it. And yeah. Skin in the game. You need skin in the game. Yeah. I mean, I've been in a couple of industries whereby proof of concept is sort of the business model. And it's crazy. Yeah. And also your question about a remarkable company. I think still one of my favorite examples is uh, Dropbox. I think they're like the perfect example of a remarkable company and especially how they started it. What they did is in the beginning, the only thing they made is a four-minute video. And it was a video explaining how Dropbox works. So they put on a website, hey, this is with Dropbox. You can share, blah, 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 storage uh, your files. Do you like it? Sign up for the beta list. And there was only an email box or like an email uh, block And people could sign up for the beta list. And in no time, they had 75,000 people signed up for the beta list. And then they went to investors. Okay, this is what we want to build. And we already have 75,000 people that want it. And that's how they raised money. And that was the moment they start to build Dropbox. So how can you make sure that you already have some proof before you pay like expensive developers to actually build it? Exactly. Yeah. And create traction before even 
you create something that is valuable for people and is desirable. And the way at least showed it, that's a very good sign that the hypothesis is really right. Yeah. Back yeah. to your research answer. Okay. Looking at the time, final question here. From the lessons that you learned being an entrepreneur, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you would like to share with other aspiring tech entrepreneurs or people that want to really level up? Yes. Well, a do, I would say, is do the time. There are no overnight successes. It's funny that people still believe there are overnight successes. And I think a nice example is Slack. So Slack, they were like in 2014, everybody was talking about Slack and their growth was insane. And then you will see this graph that they grew like this in one year. And it feels like an overnight success, but they started in 2008. So the first six years, they were also lost and founder, trying different stuff. And only in the seventh year, it started to grow. The same goes with Apple. So uh, do is do the time. If you're in it for the quick buck or that you're like, okay, this is something I would like to do for one or two years, then don't do it because things will always take longer. And don'ts, yeah, I think we already talked about many don'ts. It's actually a combination of what we discussed. So maybe as a summary, don't go too broad. Don't try to be here for everyone. Don't try to build something without some sort of uh, proof point. And there are many don'ts. Yeah, exactly. No, no, that's completely right. It's uh, chapter one of my book. And it's the reason why it's chapter one in my book, you know. Remarkable software companies realize they cannot please everyone. And the funny thing is that everybody knows it. And everybody knows that, okay, it's about segmentation and your ICP. And from the ones that have that say, oh, yeah, but we have it, I typically still see that it's very often 80 or 90% off. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's so much more to optimize and to get the traction within that group that is where you really hit the right nerve with them. Yeah, maybe then the last advice is to really walk the walk and talk the talk, because, yeah. and especially within your company, because people will notice it when you're saying one thing and doing something else. I remember... Uh, when working at Google, we had one product and it was just a terrible product. Nobody liked it. And it was not a solution for our clients, but we still had to sell it like 50% of the whole quarter. We had to sell that product. And then there was this whole town hall about solution selling. And then I also internally said, okay, but how can we talk about solution selling and still push this product where I know it's not a solution for my clients? So People will notice that and then actually they will lose their engagement because, yeah, they feel like you're saying one thing, but you actually are doing another thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's not genuine. That's the push part. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. So for people that are interested in terms of what you do, that want to get to the next level in terms of their competitiveness to hire exactly the right people, the A players, Mm -hmm. where can they go to find out more about your company? Start. And how can they say hi to you? Yeah, start.com and uh, please find me on LinkedIn. Lost and founder. No, right now, uh, founder and CEO of Start. My name is Lars van Wieren and happy to connect and always happy to share or to help out. That's also one of the do's is maybe that's the best do. That's also how we met uh, Tom is eight years ago. I started these drinks in Amsterdam, them uh, called uh, Boter Saas en Eieren. So a very Dutch name for Saas. Butter cheese and eggs. Butter cheese and eggs. And it started just with some uh, random drinks. And right now we are a group of 80, uh, 80 uh, SaaS uh, CEOs. We see each other every quarter. We have a WhatsApp group where everyone can ask all kinds of questions. Yeah. So really find some like-minded people because in the beginning you think it's a sprint, but it's definitely a marathon. So make sure that you also have some help and some people you can reach out to. 
Well said. Well said. I see exactly the same. That is extremely important because at the end, you know, a CEO is a very lonely job. <laughs> and, uh, for so many things, you cannot go up or down. You have to uh, figure it out yourself. Or if you're really lucky, then when you got good peers, you can find solutions with peers. So well said. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And this ends my conversation with Lars. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Lars van Wieren, founder and CEO of Start. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.